Hey, I'm Sierra. And I'm Kaylee. And this is True Crime and Punishment. Episode 3 of Season 2. Today, Sierra will be taking us through the Bluebell case. Bluebell is the name of a catch, which is a ship with two masts. The main mast is taller than the mizzen mast, which is the mast at the back of the ship. This was a ship that sank on Sunday, November 12th. 1961 under mysterious circumstances that's crazy because today is sunday november the 12th you're right did you mean to do that <laughs> i did not mean to do that but wow. oh wow Look Ooh. At this. so on theme yeah well unfortunately this is not a happy anniversary this is a sad anniversary of a sad tale but for our purposes today the story actually starts after the accident we're going to fast forward to Monday, November 13th, 1961, in the ocean waters near the Bahamas, around 12.35 p.m. A crew member from the oil tanker called the Gulf Lion was out on deck looking over the ocean when he spotted something in the near distance. There was a man on a dinghy calling out and waving his arms for help. As the dinghy drifted closer, the crew of the Gulf Lion saw that there was a man, and with the man was a young child. The crew members pulled the man aboard. His name was Julian Harvey, and the child with him had been one of the passengers aboard the Bluebell, the catch that he had been piloting. The child, whose name was Rene Duperault, was dead. Harvey explained that the Bluebell had been unmasted the night before because of bad weather and a terrible accident. The other passengers had been killed or had jumped overboard. He had tried to resuscitate Renee when he found her in the water, but he had been unable to. What does unmasted mean? Does that just mean like I the- think it means that the mast came off, like it broke. He okay. also apparently told the Coast Guard a fire had broken out on board as well. It was just one bad thing happening after another. Apparently strong winds had come up from the southeast and had just wreaked havoc. There was the accident and he was unable to help anybody on the ship. He actually didn't even ask that a search party be sent out to look for them, although the wreck had just happened the night before in that channel. He was convinced that all of the passengers, including his wife, Mary Dean Harvey, he was convinced that they were all lost forever. According to one article, he told the Coast Guard later that he had escaped with some flares on his raft, but he didn't even think of using them when he was drifting away from the carnage. Presumably, perhaps, because he was just so overwhelmed with all of the events that had happened. Oh, well, yeah. Sounds like a lot. The crew of the Gulf Lion contacted the Coast Guard, and they wanted Harvey brought to Nassau, Bahamas. And while the crew waited for Harvey to be picked up and taken there, they actually took up a collection for him of $165 because he had just lost everything. He was soaked. One of the crew members gave Harvey a new shirt, which he did take. But he refused to change his soaked khakis. He preferred to keep his trousers. Later, from, really? mm -hmm, yeah, it was interesting. But yeah. you'll soon learn that was not the only interesting thing about his story. Oh, no. So Captain Christopher Brown and Captain Frederick Brown, they both had the same last name. It appeared from the article I looked at. I think they were brothers. They came from the Bahamas to pick up Harvey as well as the body of Rene Duperault. And they took him to shore. Christopher Brown later reported that Harvey seemed very calm, but he kept asking, do you think anybody could survive out there tonight, meaning that Tuesday night? The captains explained that the weather was growing worse and that it was unlikely that anyone would survive the weather and it being out on the ocean. 
Once at Nassau, Harvey was put in a hotel for the evening. Throughout the course of the night, he ordered several brandies sent up to his room, which, you know, makes sense. Uh, harrowing circumstances, all of that. Mm -hmm. Reggie Anderson, the night desk attendant who brought up the last of these brandy orders, later reported that when he came into Julian Harvey's room, there were two twin beds in that hotel room. Harvey was on one of them, and on the other bed were tons of wet dollar bills that had been laid out to dry. Lots of dollar bills. Notice they were soaked. Um, so it wasn't the collection that the crew of the Gulf Lion had taken up for him. <laughs> Reggie Anderson didn't know how to account for these. He just shared that detail later after other events had come to light. Mm, so that's why he wanted the soaked khakis. Mm-hmm. It was later, uh, later friends of his mentioned that one of his two favorite places to store his cash, he was off, if he was ashore, was in his necktie. And if he was on the boats, he used to be in the military, by the way, I should clarify. He, he would slit the waistband of his trousers and stick them in there. He wanted to carry cash on him and hide it. So most likely that was where the cash had been in his khakis. Well, I mean, that doesn't necessarily need to be suspicious unless it was more cash than he should have had. It was a lot of cash, and he had just told the crew of the Gulf Lion that he had lost everything. So that was an interesting discrepancy, but you know what? Maybe he just felt uncomfortable sharing these details. What did get suspicious was his later activity. So the next day, which was Tuesday, November 14th, he got up and called Mrs. James Williams. She was the wife of Captain James Williams. She and her husband, um, I never got her actual first name. The article just referred to her to her as Mrs. James Williams. She and her husband, who was a ship captain, were taking care of Harvey's son, Lance. And then after Harvey talked to Mrs. Williams, he received a call from his friend, James Hoosier. And then he went shopping and got some new clothes. Then he stopped by the office of Nassau's port director, Captain Fennel Phillips. One article reported Harvey told the director he'd be around and wanted to see Phillips later under better circumstances. Which again, this is, what, two days after the wreck, so understandably he might not feel like talking just yet. But he did not see Phillips later. He caught a 1.30 p.m. flight to Miami, Florida. Now, I should say one source said that he left on Tuesday, and the article made it sound as if the NASA authorities found out later that he had left. They hadn't been anticipating that he was going to leave. Another source said he was allowed to leave on the 15th. So I'm not sure of the exact time he went to Miami, but he did leave. He did not stick around. Uh, a funeral home in the United States had said they would take care of Rene Duperalt's body, so he didn't have any obligations to help with that. So he was free to leave because at the time there was nothing to hold him over. One source that I looked at said that his activity had appeared suspicious to the authorities in Nassau, but they didn't have anything to hold him over. You might have said this, but did you say how old the little girl was? She was seven years old. So he goes to Florida where he is questioned by the Coast Guard. He gives more of his story and talks about the events of that night. Authorities in NASA must have thought that it was odd for him to leave because after his departure, they decided to do an autopsy on the body of Rene Duperalt. But the cause of death was ultimately deemed to be drowning. When word reached Sandy Point, which was one of the places that the Bluebell had stopped at on the trip about the Bluebell shipwreck, the fishermen and sailors in the area recalled that the weather had been good that Sunday night. Not turbulent, there hadn't been any major winds. Unlike Harvey's story that he told the Coast Guard, he told the Coast Guard that there had been bad winds which led to the accident. 
So hmm. some odd behavior, some discrepancies in his story. Now we're going to get to November 16, 1961. On this day, there was a Greek freighter called Captain Theo that was sailing through this same area where Harvey had been picked up and near where the Bluebell had wrecked. And while sailing across the water, one of the crew members observed something on the surface of the ocean. At first, it looked like more of the white caps, you know, the tops of the ocean waves when they're white and they're just breaking. Mm -hmm. But he kept watching it. And as it came closer, he realized that was not a white cap. That was a raft. And on that raft, there was a child. He was severely sunburnt, severely dehydrated. They didn't know how long she had been in the water. She was also wearing very light clothing, which blended in with the raft and the white surface of the of the white caps in the ocean water. Oh but goodness. they saw her and they pulled her aboard. There had been sharks that were starting to circle the raft. So they were calling out to her, you know, don't get off the raft, stay there. They were able to pull her up onto the boat and they were able finally to get her to say her name, Harry Joe Duperalt. Notice that's the same last name as Renee Duperalt, the little girl that Julian Harvey had allegedly tried to save. Yeah. She had been on the ocean water since the 12th of November, basically the 13th, because it was very late when the accident occurred. So basically three and a half days. She's been out on the water. She had a fever of 105 degrees, according to one article. So she wasn't oh very coherent at this time. They couldn't get the full story from her. The captain telegraphed the Coast Guard and said, picked up blonde girl, brown eyes from small white raft, suffering exposure and shock. Name, Terry Joe Duperalt, was on Bluebell. Some other sea captains, after this story came out, pointed out that Terry Joe would have been only five miles away from the Gulf Lion when Julian Harvey was picked up. So if he had pushed for them to have a search party, scan the waters, they likely could have found her on the 13th of November. Mm -hmm. But it also makes you wonder, he had been asking very insistently, could anybody survive survive. tonight? Mm -hmm. So they took her to safety. On November 17th, Harvey had a scheduled interrogation with the Coast Guard to explain the whole story, everything that needed to be told, when he was informed that Terry Jo had been rescued and that her condition was improving. He kind of was startled and he made an exclamation, but then he quickly said, isn't that wonderful? Mm. Mm-hmm. So then Lieutenant Ernest Murdoch told Harvey that an official investigation into the loss of the Bluebell and her passengers was to be launched that day. Then Harvey was explaining that he was really tired and he needed to talk to his wife's family because remember his wife had also passed away and he asked if he could be excused from being interrogated at this point. And they said, sure. On that same day, November 17th, Julian Harvey committed suicide. I wasn't expecting that. I thought you were going to say he hit the books and ran. Like, Nope. He went back to his hotel. He wrote a suicide note giving everything that he had to his son Lance. He wrote in his note, I am a nervous wreck and just can't continue. And then he also asked to be buried at sea. He didn't give any further explanation. He didn't really say why he was committing suicide other than the fact that he was a nervous wreck. However, on November 20th, after Terry Joe had some time to recover, more light was shed on these mysterious circumstances. So let's back up to the whole purpose behind the voyage of the Bluebell. So Julian Harvey did not own the ship. He was just the pilot. The people who had hired out the boat, if you will, to go on vacation was 40-year-old Arthur Duperalt, his wife Jean, and then their three children, Brian, who was 14 years old, Terry Joe, who was 11, and Renee, who was 7. 
Duperalt was an optometrist from Green Bay, Wisconsin, and the family apparently, at least according to one source, had been saving up money for this vacation to go from the Florida Keys to the Bahamas. He had been down there during his service in World War II, and he wanted to show you know, his family that part of the world and take them on an ocean cruise, and they were very excited for it. Julian Harvey was going to be the pilot, and then his wife, Mary Dean, was also going to be with them. Now, this is going to be important later, but Mary Dean was either the fifth or the sixth wife of Julian Harvey. Oh my goodness. Yes. One source said his fifth wife, and that was a newspaper from 1961. Another later source said sixth wife. So I'm really not sure, but the point is, it's a lot he's of had wives. many. <laughs> it's a lot of wives. <laughs> it's a lot of wives. Before this trip as well, it should be noted that Julian Harvey and his wife, this fifth or sixth wife, had gotten a double indemnity life insurance. This is a clause or provision to life insurance or an accident policy whereby the company agrees to pay the stated multiple, for example, double or triple of the face amount if the person dies of an accident. Accident. Yeah. You hear about these a lot in true crime where it's like, oh, that double indemnity. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I had never heard of it. So I was like, oh, that's very interesting. Also, a little bit more background about Julian Harvey. Although he had previously served in the military, he apparently was not the most noble person. There had been a few cases of insurance fraud where he'd been piloting boats that had sunk and he had gotten insurance money from those accidents. Not only were these different insurance issues that had happened before, but the second of his multiple wives had died under mysterious circumstances. Both she and her mother passed away in a car accident that Harvey somehow survived. Mm. So here's what happened on the night that the bluebell sank. Terry Joe had been below deck sleeping because it was later at night when she thought she heard her brother scream and call out for his dad. And so Terry Joe went to go find out what had happened, and she saw her brother and her mother lying on the ground in a pool of blood. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And she saw Harvey, who yelled at her to go down below deck, and so she did. And then she was noticing water and oil that were starting to spill into the cabin. There were sounds from up above, so she went up, and she asked Harvey, is the boat going down? And he said that it was. And he did strike her at some point during the night. I think it was the first time when he told her to go below deck. He also at one point had a gun that he was holding, but he did not use it on Terry Joe. When she came up aboard deck the second time, he handed her a rope to the dinghy and told her to hold onto it. But whether from shock or fear or whatever else, the rope slipped through her hands and the dinghy started to float away. Julian Harvey dove in after it, leaving Terry Joe aboard the sinking vessel. Oh my goodness. Thankfully, there was still that little life raft that she found, so she was able to get that unfastened and get onto that to push away from the wreck and float until another crew found her a few days later. We don't know exactly what happened, and Terry Joe herself was not able to see everything. But what people believe to be the most likely scenario was that Julian Harvey attempted to drown his wife. Some people think that might have been his plan all along and that he wanted passengers on the ship to act as witnesses that there was an accidental drowning because then she would drown and he would be able to tell them the story. So he had people there to kind of verify, oh, it was an accident. But people suspect that perhaps either Dr. Duperalt or one member of his family saw it happen. And so then Julian Harvey had to kill the whole family to hide his crime. Hmm. No one is sure why he spared Terry Joe. 
Some people think, well, maybe he actually wanted to get caught. He wanted to get punished for what he did. However, I'm not entirely of that persuasion because Renee Duperalt, her death was deemed to be drowning. My assumption is that he probably didn't feel as guilty killing Brian, the boy, because he was 14 mm. and then the parents, but he probably would not have chosen to kill the girls with his own hands. That's my assumption. I obviously don't know. Yeah, that, and I think it's kind of bizarre that he held on to her body. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it would be proof of drowning. It would just be like, if the boat sank, it's just like, oh, here's more evidence. I don't know. Yeah. And as like a captain, wouldn't you think that, I don't maybe I watch too many movies, but <laughs> I feel like it's a thing where you can't just leave a body with you if you're trying to like stay afloat you can't have you know yeah well his raft his dinghy or whatever it was apparently was big enough and well stocked also which caused some suspicion when he was first recovered so it, it probably wasn't too much weight to have her on it as well theoretically it could have probably also held terry joe if he had bothered to actually rescue her but of course if she had witnessed her brother and mother lying in a pool of blood she would be considered a witness so i'm assuming he just expected her to go down with the ship but that's why he was so eager to know do you think anybody could survive out there Sounds like guilt to me. Mm-hmm. So, Harry Joe went to live with relatives who took care of her. She actually, several years later, wrote a book oh. about her experiences. Yes, so we're probably going to have to come back and revisit this episode or do a Tangent Tuesday after we read that book about her experiences. I found out about it too late to get it and read it, but we'll need to look into that and give her account. What What's the book called? The book is called Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean. It's so crazy that this happened in 1961 because <laughs> thinking like, oh my word, it's like, you know, in England, they're chartering a boat to go somewhere. It's like 1800s, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's literally the 60s. It looks like Terry Duperall is now Terry Duperall. I Googled it. Mm -hmm. Fassbender, like Fassbender. So it looks like yeah. she's still alive. So yep, she is still alive and she's doing fairly well. Um, Different things that I looked at said when she was younger, nobody really helped her process her trauma, according to them, because back then you coped with things differently. Because it was the 60s. Mm -hmm, <laughs> right. But this was an interesting quote that she gave later. She said, I was never frightened. I was an outdoors child and I loved the water. And she said, I had strong faith. I believed in God and I prayed for him to help me. And I just went with the flow. This was something interesting I saw in an article from the 1960s talking about the incident. It said, Coast Guard officers hope Terry Joe Duperalt's three-and-a-half-day ordeal on a white life float will prompt legislation requiring all such life-saving devices to be painted international orange so they hmm. may be spotted more easily by sea and air searchers. Oh, yeah, because you said that she was blonde and was wearing light-colored clothes, so they really couldn't see her. Yeah, like at first it looked like it was just a white cap on the ocean, and she was in a heavily trafficked area. And again, oh. like the golf lion was probably about five miles away from where she was the day they picked up Julian Harvey. So theoretically, she should have been seen sooner. So that was something very interesting that I thought of from there. But yes, thankfully for Terry Joe, it seems like she went on to have a good life after this. Her book sounds like it was really meant to uplift and encourage others through her story. She doesn't want to be seen as a victim. She wants to be seen as someone who came through this ordeal and survived. So I definitely am excited to read that in the future and get I mean, more yeah. insight to her personal thoughts about the experience. She was out there for days. That's that's harrowing. She's Wow. And at 11 years old. And just after having witnessed her family the, murdered. Yeah, that's very heavy stuff. So I think hearing from her perspective, that would be such an interesting read, especially as someone who, who seems to be, you know, doesn't want to be seen as a victim and wants to be like uplifting. It'll be a, a thought provoking read. 
Yeah, I agree. So I'm looking forward to perhaps returning to this topic and bringing some more details to light. It definitely made me not want to go <laughs> sailing anytime <laughs> soon <laughs> reading through this story. Yeah, I don't blame you. Sometimes like the thought of open water freaks me out just a little bit. <laughs> I believe, according to one article I looked at, she ended up living and working near the ocean. She's retired now, mm -hmm. but for a while she worked near the ocean. Wow. Which, again, just shows how well she came out of it and how strong Some, she is. Resiliency there. Yeah. Strong, strong woman. Wow. The fact that – just the fact that he was – he waited and was like, do you think anyone could survive that? Do you think anyone could survive that? And then immediately ending his own life when he realized that it was going to come out that he had a hand in that. Okay, this is a case that I didn't know anything about. And when you told me that it was going to be about a boat, I don't know what I was expecting, but I did not expect – a story about a family that chartered a boat to go to the Bahamas. Yeah. I wasn't expecting this either. <laughs> Thinking some old timey like <laughs> pirate <laughs> story, but this was wow. The pointlessness of this action, if he did in fact kill the family because he was caught trying to kill his wife or successfully killing his wife, even with the motive that he had, it ended up being completely pointless because Carrie survived. And so he still ended up taking his own life. So if he did that to preserve his life or his way of life to avoid sentencing, he still ultimately didn't succeed, which just makes it pointless on top of pointless. So it's yeah. very sad. Well, thank you for sharing the story of the Bluebell ship. That was really interesting. I always like hearing cases that I've never heard anything about. All right. So it's your case. So I'm going to make you go first for your uplifting thought of the week. <laughs> oh, um, my uplifting thought of the week. Oh, my. Oh. I, I do have something from this week. On Saturday, I went to a play. It was a performance of Jekyll and Hyde, and it was very well done. But it was, at first it's depressing <laughs> because that story is exploring man's nature and like the wickedness of man's nature, which honestly ties in very well with a true crime podcast because it's where you see all the hides coming out. But just that reminder that all of us struggle with that darkness that from a Christian perspective, from sin nature. But just that reminder, this isn't so much from Jekyll and Hyde, but it was a reminder to me of how powerful literature can be in showing man's nature. And then, of course, there is also that hope that we can have as well, even with the darkness. So, Yeah, that's really true. I've been talking with a couple friends recently about literature and about the morality of literature. I need to reread Jekyll and Hyde. My sister bought me a, a pretty copy for my birthday last year. I'm trying to think of what interesting thing I can say about my week. I mean, I've been sick all week. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, uh, I don't know. Today, Sierra and I always go get coffee before recording because, you know, we're millennial Gen Z cuspers and can't do anything with <laughs> nice coffee. And I got like a frozen strawberry lemonade thing. That's very good. It makes me happy. Really good. For the win. I think that wraps up this week's case. Be aware. Take care. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.